This morning, we are back in Ezekiel and covering chapters 29 through 32. It's God's judgment on Egypt, and this is the second part of these seven judgments or messages or prophecies against Egypt. We'll start with our memory verse, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So it's all about the spirit working in and through us. And so as we go through these chapters, it's all about the world and what we shouldn't be doing. But remember, it's about the spirit in us. Now, I put Romans 5.5 5 there for a reason. Let's read that together as well. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay, so what gives us the motive, or what is the correct motive to serve and to obey the Lord? Love, yeah. We do things because we want to, not because we have to. And God does not want us to serve him with a grudging attitude. Do I have to do this? You know, No, he wants us to be wanting to do what he wants us to do. And that's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. And one thing the Holy Spirit does is pours out the love of God into our heart and gives us that desire to serve him. So just keep that in the back of your mind as we go through. Now, have you ever wondered what it would be like to have the veil ripped off death and see what it's like to go into the center of the earth and find out what it's like? Well, we're going there today. Yes, the pit, Sheol, Hades. So I'll just pray quickly. Father, thank you for your word. Please give us understanding. May your spirit teach us as we read. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so chapters 29 through 32 in Ezekiel, it's seven prophecies or messages dedicated to how and why God will judge Egypt. Remember, Egypt is a picture of the evil world system we live in today. Last week we covered the first two. This week we will finish the last five found in chapters 30 through 32. Now, why was Egypt being judged? Well, there's four main reasons, I believe. Firstly, for being unreliable, as we looked at last week, they failed to keep their promises to Israel. Secondly, for being proud. Pharaoh and the Egyptians failed to be thankful and give God the glory or credit for all their blessings. Thirdly, for being a constant source of temptation, both to sin and to depend upon it instead of God. And again, remember, they are a picture of the evil world system we live in today. This is like a recap from last week. And number four, for keeping God's people in bondage and mistreating them prior to the Exodus. So, Egypt is not just unwilling to keep her promises, but unable to keep her promises. To do what she promises to do, to deliver what she promises to deliver. God has made her weak and has made Babylon strong in her place. Egypt is going to go into captivity for 40 years. And then when she is restored, she's only going to be a shadow of her former glory. 
Why did God, again, this is from last week, why did God restore Egypt as a lowly nation? Well, to remind Israel of their sin and foolishness in repeatedly relying on and turning to Egypt when they wanted help and satisfaction and contentment. Again, I'm just going to keep repeating this. Egypt is a picture of the evil world system. These things are written in the scriptures for our learning. Yeah, We, too, enjoy the passing pleasures of sin that the world offers. And we also have this tendency, because of our sinful nature, to rely on the world's resources and solutions in time of need instead of relying on God. So the seven prophecies are listed there. I'm not going to read them all out. I'm just going to go straight into the third one. It's Egypt and her allies will fail. And I've titled this, Appearances Can Be Deceiving. And this prophecy is from Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 1 through 19. So let's read verses 1 to 4 first. Woe to Egypt is what I've called these verses. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, woe to the day, for the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia, when the slain fall in Egypt, and they shall take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken down. So, woe to the day. Verse 2. God is telling us what's going to happen before it happens. The great Egyptian empire is going to come to an end. So put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of those who live in Judah or those in their surrounding nations. The very thought of Egypt coming to an end would have just been like mind-blowing. Egypt has been a world power for like a thousand years and a powerful nation before that for over one and a half thousand years. And Ezekiel, this little prophet from this little nation who's been, you know, invaded by Babylon, he's saying Egypt's going to be destroyed. Babylon's going to conquer this world empire who's been ruling for a thousand years. How can this happen so easily? Well, God said it would happen. And we're going to find out more about that as we go. Now, for the day is near. Consider how long, in verse 3 it says, for the day is near. Consider how long proud Egypt has been in rebellion against God. Almost two and a half thousand years. Now, do you think God is patient? He's waited a long time for this day when judgment will come. But his patience has come to an end. And again, this is a picture of what God will do when he judges his evil world system at the end of the tribulation. What seemed so strong and secure and dependable will be revealed for what it really is. It's passing away and it will be destroyed. So don't put your faith in this world. Don't put your trust in this world. Don't try and enjoy the things of this world because it is passing away. And all its enticements and luxuries will be found no more. And we read Revelation 18 last week. Now why is God so patient? Why did he wait so long? 2 Peter 3 verse 9 and you can read up to verse 13 in your own time. But just read verse 9 for now. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now there's an application here. Today is a day of salvation. So don't take God's patience for granted. Just like Egypt's day came and she was judged after 
two and a half thousand years of existence. So it will be for this evil world system at the time of the tribulation. Now the personal application is that each person has their own day of reckoning, so to speak. The day when the opportunity for repentance will pass and will be taken from this earth and meet our Creator. So don't be like Egypt, the world, spurning God's graciousness and patience and ending up in Hades, the pit, or Sheol, awaiting the great white throne judgment. So as we go through the scriptures today, it's going to refer to the pit or hell. It's actually referring to the center of the earth. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades. The Old Testament, the word is Sheol. And it's also in different places called the pit. Now, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, going back to our personal day of reckoning. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So if you're not saved, don't leave it too long, because you might lose your opportunity. Now, verse 3, it says, The day of the Lord. Now, as you read through the scriptures, the vast majority of the times when it says the day of the Lord, it's referring to the seven-year tribulation. It's the day of judgment. However, and here's a quote from Wright, From time to time a nation reaches a climax of oppression and moral decay from which God humbles and often destroys it. The final day of the Lord, the tribulation, is yet to come when God will put down all sin wherever it is found. Thus, previous days of the Lord become patterns of the final day of the Lord. So, this is Egypt's day of the Lord. This is Egypt's judgment time. But there will come a time when God will judge the whole world. In verse 4 it says, The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia, when the slain shall fall in Egypt, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken down. So, they're going to lose many people. There's going to be a horrible war. Many people are going to be killed. Their riches are going to be taken away and their cities will be destroyed. Now, how did this happen? There's an interesting historical quote here from Paul. He says, Some two years, you know, two years to come, and Egypt shall be miserably routed or defeated in the deserts of Libya. Immediately after this, the civil war for 11 years together shall waste you. And then Nebuchadnezzar's forces will be upon you. So that whereas there may be about 16 or 18 years between the prophecy and its fulfilling, here is 13 or 14 of them taken up with sorrows and afflictions, forerunners of the last. So Egypt is going downhill. They lose a war in Libya and then there's a civil war in Egypt for 11 years. So when Babylon comes, they're already in a weakened state. Now, verses 5 to 9, Egypt's allies will be judged along with Egypt. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people, Chab, all the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord, those who uphold Egypt shall fall and the pride of her power shall come down. From Migdol to Cyrene, those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. They shall be desolate in the midst of the desolate countries and his cities shall be in the midst of the cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have set a fire in Egypt, and all her helpers are destroyed. 
On that day, messengers shall go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid, and great anguish shall come upon them as on the day of Egypt, for indeed it is coming. So verse 5, just want to focus on that for a sec. All who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. Those who uphold Egypt shall fall. Those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. Now, as we learnt last week, one of the applications was, don't be a part of the world. God calls us to come out of the world. Otherwise, we will share in its judgment. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. So, as a Christian, again, God calls us to come out of the world and to find our satisfaction in him instead. Verse 6, the pride of her power shall come down. And this is one of the main reasons that Egypt was being judged. It's pride. She took God's blessings for granted and took credit for what God had given her. Now, pride, remember, is one of the marks of the sinful nature, one of the main attributes of the sinful nature. And so it's very easy for us to get proud. What happens when we get proud? (laughs) God must humble us, like he's humbling Egypt here. And it's not a pleasant experience, so it's best that we submit ourselves to God, humble ourselves, and let him lift us up, instead of having to make him humble us and bring us down the hard way. Verse 10 through 12, and this is about Nebuchadnezzar conquering and destroying Egypt. Thus says the Lord God, I will also make a multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most terrible of the nations, shall be brought to destroy the land. They shall draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. I will make the land waste and all that is in it by the hand of aliens. I, the Lord, have spoken. So, simply put, Babylon will come with her allies, different countries which were allied with her, and would defeat Egypt and her allies in a bloody, overwhelming victory. Now, moving on to verses 13 through 19 in Ezekiel chapter 30, and this is judgment of specific regions and cities of Egypt. And basically the point here is that it's the whole of Egypt that's going to be destroyed. Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noth. There shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros desolate, set fire to Zoan, and execute judgment in No. I will pour my fury on Sin, the strength of Egypt. I will cut off the multitude of No, and I will set a fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain. No shall be split open, and Noth shall be in distress daily. The young men of Avon and Pi-Beseth shall fall by the sword, and these cities shall go into captivity. At Tafnes, the day shall also be darkened when I break the yokes of Egypt there, and her arrogant strength shall cease in her. As for her, a cloud shall cover her, and her daughters shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, a couple of important points here. I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noth. So through this judgment, God is going to gain honor over the idols of Egypt, just like he did at the Exodus when God, through the ten plagues, humiliated ten of the gods of Egypt. And in verse 13 and verse 19, I will put fear 
in the land of Egypt, and then they shall know that I am the Lord. So this refers to the people fearing God instead of their idols, and finally understanding that God is the only true God. That's the purpose of these judgments. Now you notice I'm not going in depth. This is a survey today because I'm going through three chapters, and it's all one section, so I'm just going through it fairly quickly. So now we come to the fourth prophecy against Egypt. And this is where God metaphorically breaks Pharaoh's arms. And I've titled this, All Strength Comes From God. It's quite tempting to think that strength comes from ourselves, right? So this is found in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 20 through 26. So let's read verses 20 and 21 where it says, God breaks Pharaoh's arm. And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold a sword. So when did this happen? When was this prophecy given? Well, it's about four months before the fall of Jerusalem. So remember that the context here is in the timeline of the book of Ezekiel. Judah has already been attacked by Babylon for the third time and the city is under siege. And it's been like that for over a year. And there's four months left of the siege before Nebuchadnezzar defeats them and destroys everything. And verse 21, it says, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh. Why is Ezekiel saying this? Well, what's Judah doing? They're sending envoys to Egypt. They're asking Egypt to help them. They're relying on Egypt for help still. And God is saying, they can't help you. Verses 22 and 23, God makes this picture of a weak Egypt very much more clear. He said he's going to break both his arms, both of Pharaoh's arms. So therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall out of his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. <laughs> so, as if it wasn't enough to have one broken arm and try and fight, you know, holding a sword, he's going to break both arms and Pharaoh's going to drop his sword. It's a pretty clear picture, isn't it? Basically, God is telling them that Egypt will cease to exist as an empire. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations. And in verses 24 through 26, Babylon will become the world power or empire. This is what God is predicting. He's telling them what's going to happen. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand. Notice it's God's sword, my sword in his hand. But I will break Pharaoh's arms and he will groan before him with the groanings of a mortally wounded man. He's going to die. Then I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down. They shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So how is God revealing himself at this time? He's going to destroy Egypt and raise up Babylon as the next world empire. No one would have predicted it. No one would have guessed it. But God said it would happen and it did happen. And they go, okay. The God of the Jews, well, he said this would happen. He must know what's going on. So now we come to the fifth prophecy. Egypt is cut down like a great tree. And 
This is all about learning lessons from history. And so this is found in Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 1 to 18. And I'm breaking it down into two parts. The first part is Egypt is compared to Assyria as a mighty tree. So remember, Ezekiel likes using parables to explain things to people. And so this is a parable about a tree. And the different trees represent different nations. And there's one big tree which represents Assyria and later Egypt. So let's read chapter 31, verses 1 and 2. And this is when the prophecy was given and why. Now it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Good question, eh? Whom are you like in your greatness? So in the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day. So this is about two months after the previous one we just read. It's about one month ago before Nebuchadnezzar breaks into Jerusalem and destroys it and takes the rest of the people captive. Verse 2, it says, Say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? God is going to compare Egypt to the nation of Assyria. Assyria was a previous world power. Egypt was still a mighty nation, but for a while Egypt was subject to Assyria. And God is comparing Egypt to Assyria. And he said, hey, Assyria was a world empire. They thought they were indestructible. You think you're indestructible, but they're gone. Guess what? You're going to be gone soon too. It's a warning. Now, this is a warning that all the nations of the world, with all their pride, should heed today, as well as individuals. Why? What's a warning? Well, God will judge sin, right? And the only way to avoid judgment is to humble ourselves, repent, and accept God's gift of forgiveness. So let's look at this parable of this mighty tree. So that here in verses 3 to 6, the mighty Assyrian empire is compared to a great tree. Indeed, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with fine branches that shaded the forest and of high stature, and its top was among the thick boughs. The waters made it grow, underground waters gave it height, with their rivers running around the place where it was planted, and sent out rivulets to all the trees of the field, that is, the other nations. Therefore its height was exalted above all the trees of the field, the other nations, its boughs were multiplied, and its branches became long because of the abundance of water, as it sent them out, that's influence. All the birds of the heavens made their nest in its boughs, under its branches, all the beasts of the field brought forth their young, and in its shadow all the great nations made their home. So notice that last bit, in its shadow all great nations made their home there. Assyria was the world empire. So verse 3 it says, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, its height was exalted above the trees of the field, in its shadow all great nations made their home. And a quote from David Guzik, the greatness of Assyria made them a place of shelter for other nations. Something true of Egypt also. But before the final fall of the city, many in Jerusalem hoped that they would find protection under Egypt's power. So what's the point here? Just like many countries looked to Assyria for protection, but Assyria was destroyed and they were no longer protected, it's foolish for Judah to look to Egypt for protection. Basically, 
Judah was looking to find shelter under Egypt, the tree of Egypt, this empire of Egypt, that Egypt would shelter them and give them protection. And that's the picture here. And verses 7 through 9, it's the incomparable greatness of the Assyrian Empire. That's what these verses are talking about. It says, Thus it was beautiful in greatness and in the length of its branches, because its roots reached to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide it. The fir trees were not like its boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. That is, the Garden of Eden, right? Probably the most beautiful garden, but this tree is better. Verse 9. I made it beautiful with a multitude of branches, so that all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. So in verse 7 it says, Thus it was beautiful in greatness and in the length of its branches. So as a worldly kingdom, in a worldly sense, Assyria had a lot of power and stature and influence around the world. They were a very powerful empire. And this is also true of Egypt. And none of the other trees representing the other nations came close in glory, power and influence. Verse 9 is really interesting. Notice God's sovereignty here. I made it beautiful. I, God, made it beautiful. Who's taking the credit for a serious success? God. I made them who they are. So we in Australia and the Western world should praise and thank God, giving him all the credit and glory for making us the prosperous and peaceful nations that we enjoy living in today. We need to learn from this lesson in the scripture. Wicked nations will be judged. So how long before using the same principle, using what's happening in Egypt and different nations, how long before Australia and other nations will be judged for their pride and wickedness? I mean, homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia, drug use, all those things. How ungrateful are we when we fail to thank God every day for the freedoms and prosperity we enjoy? And if we're not being thankful, then we're stenching God's nostrils. You know what it's like when people are not thankful? And you do something for them and they're not thankful? It's really quite hard to take, isn't it? So. That's what we're like when we're not thankful. It's it's difficult for God to take us too, I believe. So, the mighty Assyrian Empire is destroyed. This is the next part of this prophecy. So, verses 10 through 18. We'll read verses 10 through 12 first. So, mighty Assyria was conquered and destroyed. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height and set its top among the thick boughs, and its heart was lifted up in height, Therefore I will deliver it into the hand of the Mighty One of the nations, and he shall surely deal with it. I have driven it out for its wickedness. And aliens, the most terrible of the nations, have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen on the mountains and in all the valleys. Its boughs lie broken by all the rivers of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. Okay, so what's the reason for judgment? Verse 10, because you have increased in height and its heart was lifted up in its height. Pride. Remember these pictures are quite good at helping us to understand what's going on in these empires. Pride always comes before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. 
And Nebuchadnezzar was God's chosen instrument of judgment, the mighty one of the nations. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the one that God has strengthened. He's put his sword into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Nebuchadnezzar will be the world power, Babylon. And he's going to use Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to humble both Assyria and Egypt because of their wickedness. And he says, I have driven it out for its wickedness. So Nebuchadnezzar had already defeated the Assyrians like 20 years before this, and now he would soon defeat the Egyptians. Now a couple of quotes. They are portrayed, that is the Babylonians, as rough lumberjacks, like, you know, people with axes, who chop down the tree and leave it lying on the mountains. Its broken branches strewn up and down the mountains, valleys and ravines of the land. And it was block. And another one from Clark. It is worthy of notice that Nebuchadnezzar, in the first year of his reign, rendered himself master of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for defeating Assyria 20 years prior. So this whole picture, this parable, would be in the recent memory of the Egyptians and the Israelites. The same nation that destroyed Assyria is on the verge of destroying Judah and will soon, after that, defeat Egypt. Now, verses 13 and 14, there's no coming back for the Assyrian Empire. It starts with the words, on its ruin. It doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? A ruin is something that's not going to be rebuilt. Well, it can be, but in this case it's not. So on its ruin will remain all the birds of the heavens and all the beasts of the field will come to its branches so that no trees by the waters may ever again exalt themselves for their height nor set their tops among the thick boughs that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them for they have all been delivered to death to the depths of the earth among the children of men who go down to the pit so now we're going to see this change or this tendency to talk about the eternal destiny of the wicked. Verse 14, first though, so that no trees or nations by the waters may ever again exalt themselves. They have all been delivered to death. So God uses the Assyrians as an example of what happens to an unrepentant and proud nation who exalt themselves and don't remember God. And what's the lesson? No trees or nations by the waters may ever again exalt themselves. Very simple, isn't it? Don't exalt yourself. Don't get proud. He's doing everything he can to get the attention of the people using these pictures, these parables. Remember, again, pride is the predominant wickedness of our sinful nature. We take credit for things that God does. We have a false opinion of ourselves. We need to submit to his lordship and this is the only cure for our prideful independence that keeps us separated from God. There's an interesting story here. Trap says it. Shennacherib, he was one of the kings of Assyria, had a statue set up in Egypt, says Herodotus, who was a Greek historian. And this statue had this inscription. Let him that looks upon my misery learn to be modest and to fear God. So that Assyrian king, he learned his lesson. And he actually set up a statue in Egypt at that time. They were allies. And he says, 
Let him that looks upon my misery learn to be modest and to fear God. He had experienced the judgment of Babylon, of God through Babylon, and he says, you know what? My pride and my confidence in my own abilities was misplaced. And another quote from Feinberg, God had an educative purpose in the fall of Assyria to teach the nations the folly of striving for earthly might. The ultimate objective of the judgment was to deter others from the same disastrous course. (laughs) Now, the question is, are we listening and do we do the same? Nations are doing the same right now. You look around, they're all trying to be better than each other. But in our own lives, we can do the same thing too. Pride. Now, verse 14, down to the pit. Now, death is a great equalizer. Are there any rich people in hell? Are there any famous people in hell? They're not famous anymore. They're not rich anymore. Yeah? Any strong people in hell? They're not strong anymore. They're all the same. Yeah? Doesn't matter how powerful, rich, or famous, or talented someone might be, if they're not saved, they'll all end up in the pit. And a quote here from Taylor. Death is a great equalizer and the surest antidote to an excess of ambition. Now, in verses 15 through 17, the nations mourn and fear the fall of Assyria. So this is the desired effect of the fall of Assyria. Get the nations thinking, oh no. Thus says the Lord God, in the day when it went down to hell, or Sheol, I caused mourning, I covered the deep because of it. I restrained its rivers, and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it, and the trees of the field wilted because of it. I made the nation shake at the sound of its fall, when I cast it down to hell, like Sheol, the pit, or Hades, together with those who descended, descend into the pit. Now, the word pit there in the Hebrew means cistern, prison, dungeon, or world of the dead. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, and all the drink water, were comforted in the depths of the earth. Remember, the trees are a picture of different nations. Where are they comforted? In the depths of the earth. They also went down to hell. Remember, Sheol, Pit, or Hades. Uh, With it, with those slain by the sword, and with those who were its strong arm, dwelt in its shadows among the nations. So, verse 15, the main point. In the day when it went down to hell, I caused mourning. Like the feeling of dread and impending doom a criminal feels when their most cunning partner in crime is caught and imprisoned, they're going, uh-oh, I'm next. <laughs> if he can be caught, if he's not smart enough to escape the police, then I'm not either, you know. Assyria, the most powerful of nations, was destroyed. Uh-oh, it's a reality check, yeah? I'm not exempt from God's judgment. Now, verse 18 Egypt will suffer, this is the point of the parable, Egypt will suffer the same ignominious fate as Assyria. Now what does ignominious mean? I chose this word because it's very rich in meaning. It means humiliating, undignified, embarrassing, mortifying, shameful, disgraceful, dishonorable, discreditable, ignoble, inglorious, abject, sorry, wretched, miserable and pitiful. And the lesson we learn from these verses is that the world's glory leads to shame. Pride leads to shame. So let's read verse 18. 
To which of the trees in Eden will you then be likened in glory and greatness? Yet you shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. Quote from Feinberg, The reference to the uncircumcised is especially forceful because the Egyptians did practice circumcision and were amazingly meticulous as a pyramid show about proper burial. So this placing of them on the level of those mentioned, that is the uncircumcised, was the deepest disgrace possible to them. It's the most humiliating thing that they could do. To the Egyptians, those in this condition, or the uncircumcised, were outside the range of the civilized world. And verse 18, this is Pharaoh and his multitude. So again, God is making it clear that this is a parable aimed squarely at Egypt, bringing attention to the fact that other powerful world empires have been humiliated and brought to shame, and so soon will she. Now the sixth prophecy, two more to go. The crocodile is caught in God's net. So the crocodile is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is described as a lion and a crocodile in verses 1 and 2. So this sixth prophecy is Ezekiel 32, verses 1 to 16. We'll read verses 1 and 2 now. And it came to pass in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You are like a young lion among the nations, and you are like a monster or crocodile in the seas, bursting forth in your rivers, troubling the waters with your feet and fouling their rivers. So, in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, this is a year after Jerusalem has fallen. This is a funeral song. This sixth prophecy is like a funeral song. A funeral dirge, a lamentation. And it's before Pharaoh is killed. This is, you know, obviously predictive. But it's at the point where any hope that Judah had placed in Egypt was gone because they were already all in exile. They had been destroyed. In verse 2, You are like a monster in the seas. So Pharaoh and his kingdom were mighty forces in the world, second only to Babylon. And Babylon had only recently subdued Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC. Egypt was still a great force with the ability to influence and trouble other nations. That's uh, David Guzik. So that's what it means by like a monster in the seas. Still powerful at that time. Troubling the waters with your feet. And another quote by Wearsby. Pharaoh thrashed about in the water and made a big scene, but all he did was muddy the waters and create problems by disobeying the Lord. And now, <laughs> I thought about this. What do the nations do today? With their wickedness and that they thrash about and they do no good, they only stir up trouble and strife. That's what wicked leaders do. And that's what Egypt was doing as well. Pharaoh was doing. Verses 3 through 8, God catches a crocodile that is Pharaoh and slays it. Thus says the Lord God, I will therefore spread my net over you with a company of many people, and they will draw you up in my net. Remember, it's God's net. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's doing this. It's his plan. Then I will leave you on the land and cast you out on the open fields, and cause to settle on you all the birds of the heavens, and with you I will fill the beasts of the whole earth. 
I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcasses. I will also water the land with the flow of your blood, even to the mountains, and the riverbeds will be full of you. When I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. So, another picture. God is comparing the defeat of Egypt to the catching of a crocodile. Catch it in the net, drag it out into the land, kill it. But it's not eaten, it's just left to be consumed by the wild animals. This is a gruesome picture of a multitude of soldiers slain on the battlefield. The defeat in Libya and also against Babylon later on. And verse 7, when I put out your light, now I quote my block, the term kaba, which is used concretely of snuffing out a wick or a lamp, is occasionally used figuratively of death. So God is going to snuff him out. Verses 9 and 10, the nations fear. If Egypt can be defeated, so can they. And it says this, I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction, Egypt's destruction, among the nations into the countries which you have not known. Yes, I will make many peoples astonished at you and their kings shall be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them. And they shall tremble every moment, every man for his own life in the day of your fall. So verse 9, I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples So like we read last time, when a manger world power falls, the whole world suffers economically and they will be fearful of God's judgment. They will also be brought to justice. In verses 11 through 16, it explains how God is going to use Babylon as his instrument of judgment. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you by the swords of the mighty warriors, all of them the most terrible of the nations. I will cause your multitude to fall. They shall plunder the pomp of Egypt and all its multitude shall be destroyed. And I will destroy all its animals from the side its great waters. The foot of man shall muddy them no more, nor shall the hooves of animals muddy them. Then I will make the waters clear, and make their rivers run like oil, says the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate, and the country is desolate of all that once filled it, when I strike all who dwell in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation with which they shall lament her. The daughters of the nations shall lament her. They shall lament for her, for Egypt, and for all her multitude, says the Lord God. Remember, a major world power for a thousand years, and then suddenly she's gone, snuffed out. So, verse 11, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. Okay, again, God's making it very clear who is going to defeat Egypt. Verse 12, plunder the pomp. Because of their long existence and many successes, they were a very rich nation. Egypt was very rich. They'd accumulate a lot of wealth, and so they would be plundered by Babylon. Babylon would receive a huge financial gain when they defeated Egypt. Verse 13, I will also destroy all its animals. If there's no people to farm, then there's no cattle, and there were lots of cattle in Egypt at the time. And make the rivers run like oil. Well, if there's no people stirring up the water and there's no boats and animals in the canals and stuff, then it's all going to become clear and run like oil because there's no one there to muddy it anymore. 
Verse 16, this is a lamentation, a quote from Paul, the funeral speech of this kingdom for this, as a funeral oration, tells us what was their ancient glory and what is now their miserable reproach and loss. Now, we move on to the seventh and final prophecy against Egypt. The ultimate destiny of Egypt and the other world empires, the pit. Remember at the very start I said, would you like to know what happens when people die? You peel back the surface of the earth and you can look straight down and see what's going on. We're going to have a look. This is really interesting. So, the ultimate destiny of Egypt and the other world empires, it's the pit, it's Hades, Sheol. This is Ezekiel 32, verses 17 through 32. It says this, It came to pass also in the twelfth year, on the fifteenth day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt, and cast them down to the depths of the earth. Notice this is down into the depths of the earth. Her and the daughters of the famous nations, with those who go down to the pit, Sheol, it's all the same place, down. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down, be placed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those slain by the sword. She is delivered to the sword, drawing her and all her multitudes. Verse 21, the strong among the mighty, that is the deceased rulers of nations previously defeated, shall speak to him, that is Pharaoh, out of the midst of hell, that is Sheol, with those who help him. They have gone down. They lie with the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. So there's a fair bit in this we'll unpack as we go through. Verse 17, in this fourth year, the 15th day of the month. So this seventh and final prophecy was about two weeks after the previous one. Again, about a year after Jerusalem had already been defeated. Verse 18, cast them down to the depths of the earth. A quote from David Guzik, as in Ezekiel 31, 14 through 17, Egypt's destiny was to go to Sheol, the pit, the depths of the earth. Though Egypt surpassed many in beauty, their destiny would be agony and disgrace, placed with the uncircumcised. Now, application here. Is God gloating over this? No, he's saying, wail. Does God like it when all these people are going to go to Hades? Of course not, right? So we need a genuine concern for the lost, like God has. He's constantly doing these things to show people that he is the true God so that they will turn to him for salvation. That's his purpose. That's his goal throughout all history. God desires all men to be saved. So God has no joy in the death of the wicked. And so we need to have the same attitude toward unbelievers as God has. And therefore, like God, be willing to do whatever it takes to bring the gospel to every person. So remember what God keeps on saying? Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So our heart should be the same. Our greatest desire should be the same. For all people to know that God is the Lord of all. And a scripture reading from Ezekiel 18.30-32, which reveals God's heart and his purpose in judging. Therefore I will judge you, each of you. Remember this is not just judgment, disciplining. Therefore I will judge each of you, O people of Israel, according to your actions, says the Sovereign Lord. Repent, 
and turn from your sins. Don't let them destroy you. Put all your rebellion behind you and find yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O people of Israel? I don't want you to die, says the Sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. It's very powerful. What does it mean by a new heart and new spirit? A new motivation, a new desire. The people of Judah were very religious, but they were legalistic. God does not want us to be legalistic. He wants us to do things because he wants to, because we're grateful. Now, verse 19. Whom do you surpass in beauty? So, in the context, they're going down to the pit, right? So, comparing one dead body to another. Now they're in hell. Does Pharaoh surpass anyone in beauty, in glory, in splendor? (laughs) Well, you know, I think you probably agree with me that all dead bodies look and smell the same. It's pretty disgusting, yeah? No one wants to look on a dead body. There's no glory in the death of an unbeliever. They can't take anything that they've enjoyed here with them. It's all gone. With the uncircumcised. And so they were buried in disgrace as the Egyptians, like the Jews, practiced circumcision. They would not even talk to someone who wasn't circumcised, but now their bed was among these people. It was just a picture of being disgraced. Now verse 21, The strong among the mighty, the deceased rulers of nations previously defeated, shall speak to him, Pharaoh, out of the midst of hell or Sheol. They have gone down. They lie with the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. So, you want to know what they're going to say? This is what they say. God has, in effect, peeled back the surface of the earth. We're looking down and we're finding out what the leaders of these other nations are saying as Pharaoh goes down, as he's killed and all his army goes down into the pit, into the depths of the earth. A quote from Bloch. The actual words of greeting are taunting and harsh, challenging Egypt's self-esteem as the most delightful nation of earth. So, they have gone down, they lie with the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. It's a taunt. It's a ridicule. So Pharaoh, in all his glory, when he gets there, he's got no glory. He's got no riches. They put all the riches in the pyramids, remember? But he couldn't take it with him. So each of the nations listed in the following verses will taunt Pharaoh, his people, and his helpers as he takes his place among the unbelieving dead. Again, Pharaoh will have no glory or prestige in Sheol. Everything he did was for nothing. He can take nothing with him. All his earthly accomplishments will come to nothing. Now, what about soul sleep? What do we see here? Is there soul sleep? Are these people unconscious? No. The people in Sheol, or the pit, or Hades are conscious and aware of the new arrivals, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And a quote from Bloch, The inhabitants of Sheol are not asleep but fully conscious. They are aware of one another and their relative positions. They also know that their assignment was determined by their conduct during their tenure in the land of the living. Okay. Verses 22 through 30, Egypt joins other former nations in Sheol, Hades, or the pit. So, Assyria is there and all her company, with all their graves around her, all of them slain, fallen by the sword. Her graves are set in the recesses of the pit. So remember, you're looking down into the 
world of the dead, yeah, into the center of the earth. And accompanies all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who caused terror in the land of the living. There is Elam and her multitude, all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who have gone down uncircumcised, that is, humiliated, to the lower parts of the earth, who caused their terror in the land of the living. Now they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. This is going to be repeated again and again and again. They cause their terror in the land of the living. Now they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. You can do whatever you want now, you know, as an unbeliever or even as a Christian. You can live for yourself. You can cause your terror, so to speak. But when you get there, when you stand before God at the beam of seat judgment, or you get to Hades, then you know, you're going to just feel shame. Verse 25, They have set her bed in the midst of the slain with all her multitude, with her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, though their terror was caused in the land of the living, yet they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. It was put in the midst of the slain. There are Meshach and Tubal with all their multitudes, with all their graves around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, though they caused their terror in the land of the living. They do not lie with the mighty who have fallen or the uncircumcised who have gone down to hell, Sheol, with the weapons of war. They have laid their swords under their heads, but their iniquities will be on their bones. That's interesting, isn't it? They're still responsible for their sin. They're there because they don't have a saviour. They didn't accept God's salvation. Because of the terror of the mighty in the land of the living. Yes, you shall be broken in the midst of the uncircumcised and lie with those slain by the sword. There is Edom, her kings and all her princes, who despite their might, remember when Edom was a kingdom on earth, they were a mighty kingdom. But despite that, they are laid beside those slain by the sword. They shall lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. There are the princes of the north, all of them, and all the Sidonians who have gone down with the slain in shame at the terror which they caused by their might. They lie uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. So God gives them power, God gives them resources, and what do they do with it? They use it for their own glory, they cause trouble, and now they bear shame because of their misuse of what God gave them. Verse 22 to 30, Assyria is there, there is Elam, there is Meshach and Tubal, there is Edom, there is the princes of the north, the Sidonians. So all these nations are going to be watching and commenting or taunting Pharaoh as he comes into the pit. And they're all feeling shame because of their violence and wickedness in the land of the living. Interesting, hey? So when an unbeliever dies, what are they going to be feeling? Shame. Because of their wickedness in the land of the living. So this is an awful way to spend eternity, regretting your life and feeling shame over your prideful attitude towards God. And how stupid do they feel now they realize their life was wasted? Uh, Feinberg says, Some of those named had not yet disappeared from the pages of history, but their doom foretold of God, nonetheless sure, and was viewed as having occurred. Now, the last two verses. 31 and 32. God the judge puts Egypt in her place, Sheol. Pharaoh will see them and be comforted over his multitude, Pharaoh and all his army, 
slain by the sword, says the Lord God. <laughs> what an end to an empire, hey? For I have caused my terror in the land of the living, and he shall be placed in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword, Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. So Pharaoh caused his terror in the land of the living. He you know, caused trouble. He did what he wanted to do. But God caused, he says in verse 32, for I, God, have caused my terror in the land of the living. And that was a judgment by Babylon over Egypt. Now verse 31, is a quote. it says, Pharaoh will see them and be comforted. What does this mean? Well, the quote from David Guzik and Morgan, I'll read them out to you. Ezekiel ironically mentioned some small comfort that would come to Pharaoh on the day he entered hell, or Sheol. The comfort would come from knowing that he was not the only one to suffer such shame and disgrace in judgment. That's the only comfort you're going to have as an unbeliever in hell. <laughs> that you're not the only one who's being shamed and disgraced. Morgan says, The prophet's declaration that Pharaoh shall see them and shall be comforted is appalling as it reveals that the only comfort that can come to him is the profound sense of the operation of infinite justice in the punishment of all, himself included, who have been guilty of the abominations which have issued in the judgment of Jehovah. So, the only comfort that the unbelieving dead will have is that everyone is judged equally. They're all judged according to God's perfect justice. In verse 32, For I have caused my terror in the land of the living. God will have the last say. Yeah? World leaders think they are creating history, but history and the future are all his story. God is infinitely greater than any man or nation, and in the end, after they have caused their terror and havoc among the nations, they will experience God's terrifying judgment upon themselves. And a quote from Bloch, which sums up the importance of this prophetic word from Ezekiel here. The oracle affirms that Yahweh is the Lord not only of individuals, but also of history. The rise and fall of nations may appear attributable to charismatic and gifted leaders, but behind all international movements, one must acknowledge the supreme hand of Yahweh, who alone fixes the times and seasons of their lives and sets the limits to their conduct, determines the nature of their downfall, appoints the agents of judgment, and in the process accomplishes his goal, the universal recognition of his power and his person. So, conclusion. I'm praying that this expose of what happens after people die will enlighten you to see the foolishness of following, seeking, and enjoying this evil world system. It will have zero benefits for you for eternity. You cannot take any of your temporary accomplishments or pleasures with you. And again, all unbelievers have to look forward to is a multitude of fellow unbelievers saying, yes, you two were fooled. Come and join the rest of us in shame and dishonor. Now, for believers, our eternal destiny is secure, but we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Those believers who focus their lives on themselves and finding satisfaction and pleasure in this evil world system will find that they will be saved. And this is from 1 Corinthians 3.15. They will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. We will stand before our holy God 
and our life will be judged according to his holiness. Now, you don't want to smell like smoke for eternity. <laughs> so to avoid this ignominious or humiliating fate, follow or obey their following admonition. So let's stand and read these verses from Colossians together. This is the answer to worldliness. This is how we overcome the, this tendency we have to desire the things of the world and to find our strength in the world. Sorry. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. You ready? Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Because of these things, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Father, I thank you that we don't have to do this ourselves. It's impossible to do this ourselves. We cannot change ourselves. But what we can do is look to you. We can obey this commandment to think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Give us the strength, we pray, to set our sights on the realities of heaven and to think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth to understand that we are dead to this life and that our real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed to the whole world, we will share in his glory. This is so good, Lord, and we thank you for this promise that we won't be shamed, we're not going to suffer eternal humiliation. As believers, we can share in the glory of Christ Jesus. So help us to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have called us to. And when we stand before you, Lord, there's going to be some things that will be burned up, but Lord, I pray that the majority of our life will be found to bring praise, honor, and glory to you, having been done with the right motive and with submission to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.